0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info.
1: A global pandemic, crashing economies, and protests over systemic racism have put American mayors, like Van Johnson, to the test. In less than six months on the job in Savannah, he's had to make some tough choices.
2: We'll go ahead, we'll mandate it. You can be mad at me and complain and bust at me later, Um, but the role right now is to keep Savannah safe.
1: I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, while Atlanta is again at the center of a civil rights struggle, we hear from leaders in Savannah, like the mayor and police chief Roy Minter.
3: I wear this uniform to work, but I wear this every day as an African-American male when I'm out in the community, and I never forget that. George Floyd could have been me.
1: Plus, a city within a city. A community-based plan to combat the spread of COVID-19 amongst Savannah's homeless population. New challenges for Georgia's oldest city coming up. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. America's mayors have taken center stage in 2020. Big city mayors feuded with state and federal officials over COVID-19 protections and resources and have been praised and condemned for their handling of protests sparked by the death of George Floyd. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser is now in the spotlight as a presidential foil. And Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has become a television news fixture as Atlanta is again at the center of a struggle for civil rights. These crises have been unfolding on a national scale, but affect lives in every American city or town. Today, we're looking at how local leaders in Savannah, Georgia's first city, and the state's largest coastal municipality are responding. First up, Mayor Van Johnson, who took office in January of this tumultuous year and joins me via Zoom. Mayor Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: Thank you so much, Virginia. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you.
1: So just six months into the job, you've had a pandemic, shutting down schools, businesses, and then reopening the economy. All these protests surrounding racial justice, first in nearby Brunswick, and they ramped up after the killings of George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks. This, to me, looks like baptism by fire as a mayor. How are you reacting to the pressure?
2: It's been absolutely trial by fire. We did not expect to be in this place. There was no playbook for some of the things that we're experiencing. Um, but yet Savannah is strong because uh, of our team here. We're strong because of our our residents, our citizens. And so we've been able to kind of ride the wave. Um, we're, we're addressing issues and trying to be transparent as we move forward.
1: Well, outside of your role, Savannah has seen a significant shift in leadership over the last five years. Lots of new people on city council, new yes. police chief Roy Minter, who we'll speak with later actually on the program. He's been in the position for less than two years how do you interpret these changes in local governance? What was behind this shift?
2: I think it was a, a, a shift that we saw coming in terms of people uh, interacting based on an empowerment. I think um, history shows there are times when people just get fed up and they want to wipe slates clean. And so uh, what we saw was I ran for mayor, but we had I have nine council members, and I'm the mayor, really only one council member came back seven members uh, new on our, our community I think and they are different they're not the business people these are community activists they're community leaders people that have been heavily engaged in grassroots organizing so I think people are saying that we really want to shift to be more focused on neighborhoods and more focused to the issues that people deal with every day
1: well Wiping the slate clean is something that has come up a lot, especially during these George Floyd protests. When they first began, Savannah citizens came out to march and to protest, and you were there. How do you consider your role in these demonstrations? It's pretty significant when the mayor is walking alongside protesters, and not every mayor did that.
2: Well, I think that my issue is that I'm the mayor of this city. I've been a law enforcement officer for over 20 years. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm a black man. And so for me, that is a part of my uniform that I can never take off. I've had my own interactions with police. I've served as a police officer. I felt the frustration that people felt when they say, oh, no, not again. Um, there is something systematically wrong. People have been saying it in pockets for years. Um, but this time is different. That now, and maybe because of the pandemic, people were quiet enough to really pay attention to what was going on. And so now um, you have people from all corners of our community, from all races, all religious um, backgrounds, that are saying, you know what? Black lives do matter. Yes, we know that all lives matter. And so some people say, why has to be black lives? Well, I mean, all houses matter in my neighborhood. But if it's one that's on fire, it is that house that the fire department is gonna pay attention to because it's on fire. And so we're saying all lives do matter. But in this case, as it relates to uh, African-Americans, particularly males and particularly with their interactions with police departments across the country, um, this is a situation that's on fire. And it deserved my respect, it deserved my attention to be a part of this.
1: But you, as you said, you have a background in law enforcement yourself, and there have been protests. They've prompted focus on law enforcement, certainly. There have been proposals to reimagine, to reform, to defund, or to abolish policing altogether as we know it. What is your approach? I mean, you are, on the one hand— appealing to a a constituency of activism who have been complaining for a long time about inequity in the system, but also your head of, you know, the city and the police forces de facto. So how are you managing these two different, which often seem like conflicting motivations?
2: Well, and and they are uh, to me sometimes at times, but to me, I've been able to be very transparent and very clear. First of all, we're not defunding our police department we need our police department we have um issues because when someone gets into trouble the first way you want to call is a police officer to not have a police department means you have anarchy which is what some people want you have lawlessness which some people want so we're not defunding them um and and to me all police officers are not bad the vast majority of our law enforcement are Um, individuals, men and women who take their work seriously, they want to do the right thing, and they just want to go home at the end of the day. On the other hand, all black men are not criminals. uh, And all black men are not suspects. And so they deserve the same ability to be treated um, respectfully under the confines of the law as everyone else. Um, I think the problem is, when you look at some of these cases, you know, the question has to be Bear in mind, would this case have handled the same way if this, this guy was white? And I think that's what people are saying. So this is a critical moment in time for us to be able to evaluate how we do business. And I'm just glad that now people of all races are saying, you know what? Yeah, this was kind of messed up.
1: A lot of questions about how government and private institutions can provide or create meaningful and lasting change. During the George Floyd protests, you announced the Equity Task Force. How will that function?
2: It's important for us to move this from a moment to a movement. Um, The moment was people out there protesting. And we we have protests and people see protests come and they go. People have emotionalism and it comes and it goes. What we have to do is move it to really the work part of it, the, the, the movement part of it. And so we know it's not only inequities as it relates to um, policing, but there are inequities and disparities across the spectrum, be it education, be it economics, be it healthcare. Um, And so this is an opportunity for us to be able to look at it from a data point of view, um, look at it intelligently, look at it academically, and let's bear out the perceptions and emotions that people feel. And so once we have the data um, spelling out what the situation actually is, then we can work on how do we address these things as it relates to savannah. And so I think, again, the emotions don't mean anything if nothing comes out of that.
1: Well, that's a question. How will this actually function? How will it work? How are you going to put data to work in creating policy?
2: I mean, the data is not hard to pull. The the question is, once we pull the data, let's look at the data. Let's extrapolate that data. Let's dig down deeper in this data and let's look at it in terms of not only race, but class, not only in class, but of gender, not only of gender, but orientation, identity. And so then now you now have a blueprint, you have a playbook, so to speak, that you can now say, Based on this, we see these disparities. We see these barriers. How can we do better as a community to address these barriers? Some of it might be in legislation. Some of it might be in policies and procedures. And some things will be easier than others. Some are low-hanging fruit. Some are systemic. But at least from this, Savannah is different because of this.
1: I'm speaking with Savannah Mayor Van Johnson. We're exploring how he sees his role as a leader in these very uncertain times of COVID-19 and the calls for racial justice and how to move forward. One of the things that activists have called for, and in 2017, a task force recommended removing two busts of Confederate leaders there in Savannah. This was before you were mayor. You were on the city council, however, at the time, and the city council did adopt the recommendations but there hasn't been a lot of movement since then. So I want to ask you first, you know, how much teeth, how much bite is behind task force in making policy?
2: Well, I think that task force have as, as much uh, power as the body that organizes them have. You need to put it in context. The, the recommendations came from the committee in 2017. Uh, in 2019, the state changed, changed the law to make it much more restrictive in terms of municipalities having the power to remove the historical statues. So um, essentially we're at a point now that, you know, state law just basically prohibits us from doing it. Um, unless, you know, for some very, very clear things, if we move it, we have to move it to a place of equal prominence. Um, we can't move it to a cemetery. So it's really kind of I think that the the recommendations were valid. It's just that the state has now put us in a position where they're not illegal. Uh, We've had um, uh, two of our busts that have been vandalized, um, and certainly we can't continue to clean them up.
1: Well, as you know, there has been a proposal by Representative Shelley Hutchinson to change that legislation preventing the removal of Confederate symbols, monuments, plaques, markers, or memorabilia. So if the Georgia legislature does vote to allow them to be removed, then what would your path going forward for those busts be in Savannah?
2: My, my path would be for a courageous community conversation uh, about this um, because for Savannah Confederacy, whether we like it or not, is a part of our history. Um, it is a part of the reason we are who we are. Um, I walk by these monuments and they have a little different meaning. I don't look at them in terms of hate. I look at them in terms of overcoming. Um, here I am, the mayor of, of the city. Here I am years and years later showing that we were able to overcome. I think it's an opportunity for new heroes. I think it's an opportunity for new monuments. I think it's an opportunity to explain some of these current monuments in context um, about where people lived and how they lived. you know people today because we know better and do better, uh, if we were back in that time, we would have acted as people acted in that time. So for me personally, I don't harbor no ill will towards anyone. Um, I feel no monument has ever hurt me, but I think it's more important for us to get rid of the monuments of structural racism in terms of our practices, policies, ordinances, and laws that that keep people um, living in Confederate times.
1: Well, one of those disparities is communities of color have been much more heavily impacted by COVID-19. On Monday, you called an emergency special meeting to discuss the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic on the city and on Chatham County overall, along with Dr. Lawton Davis, director of the Coastal Health District. Why call this meeting? Why why an emergency now?
2: Because on Thursday and Friday, Chatham County uh, experiences highest levels of infections since the pandemic started. Um, so at this point, we are now in a situation where um, we are worse off now in terms of infections than we were when we started and doing the stay-at-home order. It was necessary to me to be able to get the council together, for them to hear directly from our Coastal Health District Director, for them to ask him questions, uh, and then for us to be able at least to have some preliminary discussions about where do we go from here. Uh, It is clear that um, things were not getting any better. Um, We are open. And so therefore, we have to see what we can do. We recognize that we are um, handcuffed, so to speak, um, by the governor's order. But I think there are some things that we can do. Um, One of those things that we believe we can do is the mandate that our citizens uh, and people in our city wear masks in in the public space. Um, We know that wearing masks or face coverings helps slow the spread from person to person. If we're able to slow the spread, we're able to arrest the infection rate. We're able to get on that downturn uh, in terms of uh, getting our city back to our new normal.
1: Well, you know our country is increasingly polarized, and there are fierce debates over issues like the response to COVID-19 that have become politicized. So now we're at a point when it feels like wearing a mask or not is not just a health decision, but a political statement. So, how, in a city with a, a range of ideologies and constituencies, are you approaching leading everyone?
2: I'm just trying to keep folks safe. That's all it is for me. It's not Democratic or Republican. It's not issue about libertarian. Um, you know, it's, for me, it's an issue of keeping Savannah safe, which is what I'm charged with. So, people can complain. I just want you to be healthy enough to complain. Um, if you're intubated and you're in a hospital, obviously you don't have the ability to complain. We'll go ahead. We'll mandate it. You can be mad at me and complain and fuss at me later. Um, but the role right now is to keep Savannah safe. I don't want to politicize this. I think the science is clear. So I'm going with the science.
1: So you've talked about a couple of cases where local leadership and state leadership and also, if we use the subtext, federal leadership are at odds so, Mayor Johnson, if you if you could wave a magic wand and make the city of Savannah the best it could possibly be, what would you begin with?
2: First of all, that there would be no COVID nineteen, that we would be clear of that. But there is a sense, of a renewed sense of equity, that people understand that we might have been created equal, but we don't live equally, and that there are uh, conditions in place, some systemic. Um, some historical. Sometimes it's just based on where you live. And so um, for us to really get involved with that work and for people to understand that work, to say, you know what, I have five oranges and this person has none. And I should be concerned that person has no oranges at all. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily mean a redistribu- redistributing of my five, but we need to invest in getting a tree so we're able to make sure those folks that have none have none. And I think once you're able to do that and you recognize and understand the collective worth of people, um, we're able to solve any problems that come before us.
1: Savannah Mayor Van Johnson, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate your time.
1: Coming up, the talk is a rite of passage for Black Americans. Well, we're going to hear from a handful of Georgians who received the talk as young men, how they passed it along, including from Savannah's police chief. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thoughts. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. For generations, the talk has been a mainstay in African-American families. At some point, black children all get warnings from elders about how to avoid or survive police encounters. We asked three Georgia men about how they remember the talk. Here's what they had to say.
4: My name is Dr. Andre Brock. I'm an associate professor at Georgia Tech.
5: My name is Terrence Lester. I'm the executive director and founder of Lobby and Walls. My name is Gerald Nunes. I work as a case manager at a personal injury law firm. You know, the talk is a rite of passage for
6: Black children. Essentially, we're taught how to behave in the presence of police officers to mitigate potential harm.
4: It was very much a sense of these are not The friendly officers that you see on Nickelodeon or the like, these are people who are vested in finding a way to get you in trouble.
6: It's a discussion that many Black parents consider a necessary evil, dreading the day when their children kind of go from their
5: innocence to being considered threats. The first thing they told me was that I'm going to grow up to be a Black man and that I was already gonna have strikes against me because of that. And I didn't necessarily understand it back then. If you're ever pulled over by the police, be polite and respectful and keep your mouth closed. Also, to make sure that I'm always calm. Even though it's a little difficult to try to be calm, I've noticed that if I'm being pulled over for any reason, uh, my heart begins to race. Even if you're in the right, you know, watch
4: your words. You need to have a receipt in your hand when you leave the store and hold it visibly. Seeing what my friends may have gone through, um, not
5: having a receipt and being accused of stealing something, that just put in my head to make sure to always get one. Never pick up anything if you don't intend to buy it. Keep your hands in your pockets and away from the shelves. My uncles would warn me not to wear baggy clothes. My dad didn't want me to have cornrows growing up you should always
6: have your hair cut. You should always have clean clothing on. And never look angry or sad in public
5: because you could be viewed as a threat. It's difficult, but it's like, I always question, am I going to make it after this? Like, am I going to be alive? I just wanted us to make it home safe.
6: As a father, having a son and a daughter, uh, it's important for me to equip them and pass along this knowledge.
4: I have three children, and my 25-year-old has grown up in New York all his life. And having to tell him to reduce yourself to the least objectionable agent is a humiliating thing to have to tell your child. I struggle with explaining
6: this sense of inequality. Black children encounter this
5: information, you know, at 9, 10 years of age. I have a nephew. He'll be 10 in September, and we've but we're going talking to him, and so we're trying our best to not traumatize him, but try to prepare him.
4: My youngest, I want to talk to her about the ways that she can be misunderstood as a black woman. It's a variation on the talk, but it's still necessary to have.
6: It's just one of those things where, you know, your heart really hurts in America. If your skin is kissed by nature's sun, um, the reality is that you will be treated differently.
4: What I wish that people understood about being a Black man in America is that while I constantly exist under the watchful eye of racism and racist ideology, that that is not the only thing that constitutes me.
5: I want people to know that the color of my skin should not make me more threatening.
6: Racial trauma is real. So many people have the option to disengage. I don't have that option. I have to wake up every single day with the residue of what has happened historically in recent history,
5: and that affects me. Living with that stress and seeing different things and causing trauma, it is a detriment. It does hurt us and it holds us back from a lot of stuff. As Black parents are having this talk with their
6: children, I hope non-Black parents are also having talks with their children to ensure that we have a safer and equitable world.
1: Dr. Andre Brock, Terrence Lester, and Gerald Nunes on their experiences with the talk, a right that cuts across regions, socioeconomic status, and profession, even for members of law enforcement. Roy Minter has been chief of police for the Savannah Police Department since August of 2018. Before that, he was police chief in Peoria, Arizona. He received the talk as a young man growing up in Detroit and later gave it to his kids. I asked him what drew him to becoming a police officer in the first place.
3: Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And and I tell people all the time, especially when I meet with youth groups, if you would have asked me when I was in high school what I wanted to be, police officer was nowhere on that list. The only time I usually saw police officers in my neighborhood was if they were either writing somebody a ticket or taking somebody to jail. Mm. And I was that kid, I tell them, you know, I had zero respect for police. I was a kid who used to hide in the bushes and throw rocks at Detroit police cars when they rode by. And in my high school year, I happened to, you know, miss registering for one last class that I needed to. And when I went back, there were only two choices. It was either a biology class or a criminal justice class. Mm -hmm. Well, mama didn't raise no fool. Uh, So I decided maybe the criminal justice thing will be an easy A. And I took the criminal justice class, not reading the curriculum and not realizing that it was a criminal justice co-op class, which required all of the students to spend a minimum of 10 hours per week working at a police station. And during that particular period of time, in my junior year of high school, I got to meet police officers, and I got to see them in a different light. And then guess what I wanted to be when I graduated from high school?
1: Not a biologist. (laughs) Well, so how old were you at that time? What, high school?
3: Yeah, 16, 17 years old.
1: Now, at that point, had you gotten the talk from your parents?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, growing up in Detroit, you know, I remember my dad telling me, you know, to um, be careful. And, and I had an experience that was, you know, I still remember to this day of getting stopped by a couple of police officers. And I feel the only reason why I was stopped was because I was racially profiled. And it wasn't in the city of Detroit. It was in one of the suburban cities. Just, you know, I, I ran to the store and I had a couple of police officers pull me over because they said I didn't signal. I knew I signaled. And, and I believe the only reason why they stopped me was because I was an African-American male In that particular area, where at that particular point in time, there wasn't a heavy African-American population in that area. Mm -hmm.
1: So had your father, mother told you what you should do when you were pulled over by the police or having any kind of interaction with the police?
3: Sure. You know, my my father always stressed three things. He said, if you get pulled over, first of all, be be courteous, Um, basically be be respectful. Um. The other thing he said, be clear in your communication. You know, if you're reaching for your wallet, if you have to lean over and grab something, make sure you clearly communicate that to the officer. And he said the third thing is, important thing is, and I really, I really stress this to people, know your rights. And if you feel like you're being treated unfairly, and I did this on this traffic stop, I asked for both officers' names and I asked for their badge numbers. Mm-hmm. and And I actually called into the station you know, with my father standing by and actually asked to speak to a supervisor and told the supervisor what happened. And the supervisor said, I'll look into it and get back to you. I'm still waiting. And that was over 30 years ago.
1: (laughs) So this is all in your memory, in your back pocket, if you will, when you are going through the training, the co-op training, and then going through the academy and learning your own way as a police officer. How did that inform who you wanted to be as as a cop?
3: Well, you know, it, it really built a strong foundation for me because I realized during that time that I was working at the police station that, you know, if I became a police officer, it would give me the opportunity to go out and be a representative of law enforcement and basically treat people the way I feel they should be treated and to try and and kind of pay back what was done with me when I was in high school and that is to go out and make a difference in the community and be a positive representation for law enforcement, especially in communities of color.
1: Yeah. You have children yourself. I've, I, I did a little bit of uh, social media creeping on you and saw that you have some kids, right? Mm-hmm. I've got a daughter and a son. So have you given them the talk, the talk about how they should behave, not just if they're stopped by police, but in public in general?
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, my son's 30 years old. Um, he's active duty military right now. He's deployed right now. My, my daughter, is uh, she's 28, and she's a school teacher in Texas. And I've, I've had the conversation with both of them. The kind of similar things that my dad told me, you know, be respectful, be clear in your communication with law enforcement, and basically know your rights. And, and I've always told them, you know, especially in you know today's day and age, and especially with technology, If you feel uncomfortable about the situation, and I tell community members this, you have the right to record your interaction with law enforcement, just like we in law enforcement should be recording our interaction with you. Mm -hmm. And we remind our officers all the time that, you know, there's a department policy and requirement for you to have that body-worn camera on, but you also, if somebody else pulls out their phone and says, I'm going to record this too, you don't have the right to tell them, no, you're not going to record it.
1: I'm just wondering how it feels for you, knowing You've worked on the on the beat in the field behind the shield for so many years with so many different police officers. What does it feel like for you knowing that your son just driving out or your daughter driving are more likely statistically to be pulled over for failing to signal in your case or not wearing a seat belt? Knowing that your profession is being singled out as targeting African-Americans in general.
3: Well, of course, it concerns me. It concerns me. And that's, that's the part of the reason why I continue to do this job, to continue to try and make a difference out there. Me as a police chief, I have a responsibility to make sure as best I can, we provide the training, direction and accountability standards for officers on our department. So as best we can, we try and alleviate those types of situations occurring in our community but we also want to make sure that people in the communities that we serve understand their rights and also don't fear the police. Well, I understand it's not always going to happen, and especially in today's date and time, I completely understand the anger, the frustration and people being upset about what's going on right now. I, I completely get it. And looking at, you know, a couple of these incidents that have occurred, I mean, I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I'm upset over what I've seen and the actions of law enforcement officers around this country. But we have to keep that in the forefront and we have to understand that yes, there is a segment of our community that's nervous, that's fearful of us, and now it's time for us to step back and say, not only do we have to understand that, but what do we do to address
1: it? So we've been asking other people about the talk and ask them, what they wish other people understood about being a black man in America. I wonder if I could frame that for you as, what do you wish other people understood about being a black police officer in America?
3: Well, you know, here's here's what I tell people. I wear this uniform to work, but I wear this every day as an African-American male when I'm out in the community. And I never forget that. I never forget the fact that I work as a police officer but I live every day as an African-American male. And I never forget about the fact that George Floyd could have been me. Rashad Brooks could have been me. And in those situations where people are out there and there's fear and distrust of law enforcement because of things that have gone on, I can never forget the fact that as an African-American police chief, I need to be aware of those issues and concerns in the community. I need to be very understanding of those issues and concerns in the community. And I need to do the best job I can of addressing those issues and concerns in my community.
1: But I am curious, given that Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields stepped down. This is amid low morale and resignations of individual officers in various cities, including Atlanta. How do you provide leadership and guidance within a police department at a time like this?
3: Well, you know, that's, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, we tell people all the time, you know, all it takes is for one bad incident to occur and it could change or taint the entire view of your organization out in the community. Every day that you go out there, that's an opportunity for you to make either a deposit or a withdrawal in the trust account of members of our community. And you need to go out there and make as many deposits as you can. You know, change attire, be very professional and respectful, because you never know, heaven forbid, if you have a situation like Atlanta and you have to make a withdrawal or people start making withdrawals from that trust account. You need to make sure that you got more deposits than you have withdrawals.
1: I wonder if you have a message for Black parents or African-American parents out there who are fearful for the safety of their sons and daughters, something that has been brought to our attention in a widespread way throughout the country and now even throughout the world.
3: Well, the message that I've been telling people is, you know, the message that's been being sent loud and clear throughout communities, especially the African-American community, is that we're frustrated, we're upset, we're angry, um, and we're also fearful. Of law enforcement right now. Well, some of us get it. I'm not going to say everybody gets it, but but we hear you, and we also understand that people no longer just want a voice; they want power. And we realize that this is a time in law enforcement where people aren't looking for answers from us; they're demanding answers and they're demanding action. I completely understand. I've been very clear with members of our community when they've asked, "Chief, do you think there needs to be?" police reform. Absolutely. And the three things that we have to do that we need to make sure that we're very clear on is we have to acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge that there is an issue right now with law enforcement. We can't deny it. We have to acknowledge it. The other thing is we have to commit to doing something about it. We can't keep saying we're going to talk about it. We're going to get together. We think we're going to do something. We have to make a commitment to do something to address the issue that's going on in this country right now with police community relations. And the third thing is it has to be a priority. We can no longer say six months from now, two years from now, we're going to see what we can put together. This has to be a priority. We have incidents that are occurring almost on a daily basis that are causing concerns in communities, especially the African-American community. We have to acknowledge it. We have to commit to making a difference and doing something about it, and it has to be a priority.
1: Chief Roy Minter, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Roy Minter is Chief of Police of the Savannah Police Department, a position he's held since August of 2018. Coming up, how Savannah is addressing an uptick in homelessness during COVID-19. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought continues. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. When COVID-19 hit Savannah, city leaders were particularly concerned about the homeless, or roofless. That's the term Third District Alderwoman Linda Wilder Bryan prefers. Her drive to help people who couldn't get into shelters led to a proposal for Dundee Village. Now, plans are underway for a safe and sanitary complex of tents and later shipping containers to house people displaced by the pandemic and at risk of contracting COVID on the streets. Alderwoman wilder Bryan joins me to talk about the initiative that could be a model for future efforts in Savannah and in other cities. Welcome. Thanks so much for taking the time.
0: Good morning, Virginia. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for this opportunity.
1: So you are moving forward on a plan to create this Dundee Village. Now, this is adjacent to... The tiny houses, that's a complex that was created for veterans, I think now in its second phase. So, Alderman Wilder-Brian, tell me what the lot that will become Dundee Village looks like now.
0: Right now, it's just 1.5 acres of land that sits next door to the tiny houses in the, uh, the top of the 3rd District. You know, uh, the city manager has paid for the chain-link fence to circumference the area to add some added security. The Georgia Power has added the lights. And so now we're just waiting for the tents to come back. People were so excited. They sent tents and we had to exchange the tents so that they would be waterproof. And so um, Amazon has graciously said that they would you know, take them back because they're still in boxes. And so we're just waiting for uh, the truck to come from North Carolina that will house the uh, shower stalls and the bathroom stalls just really excited.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a, a, an amazing project that you got the idea for this, this Dundee Village from an article you saw of a similar effort in Tampa. What really appealed to you?
0: Well, what was so appealing is that we know that we need to follow science and science says that we need to wash our hands for at least 20 seconds. And it just dawned on me that some of the people don't even have water to drink let's wash their hands. And so I didn't event the wheel. We just tried to keep it greased here in Savannah. And so Tampa did a really great thing and we tried to emulate them in our own tweet forms.
1: Well, part of you greasing the wheel was asking on Facebook for donations of all kinds, including clothing and pet food. Now we know you got yeah. tense, but how did the community respond in general?
0: It was overwhelming. You know, people are home and they know that a lot of them are blessed. They have an opportunity while they're home to open up the refrigerator get a cold glass of water. And so, you know, I just appealed to people's, for one of a better word, their thoughts about humanity and where we were. And so the one thing about this pandemic is people who did not have the time to think about the suffering of other people, it became, I'm suffering too, but just not as much as the ruthless people. And so it was just overwhelmingly humbling to see that people cared and wanted to send bug spray and socks and it kind of grew its own legs. And I'm just so happy that people heard my uh, cry for help and my call to action. It was amazing.
1: How many people will it eventually house there at Dundee Village?
0: Well, we're going to start out with like 75 to 80 people and have a command center there that's going to offer wraparound services. We know that a lot of people have substance abuse and mental health issues. And so we just wanted to do something that would also take care of people that we just tend to forget. And it's not to isolate them and make it like a camp, it's to make sure that they are getting the services that city provides to everyone. Just because you're ruthless, it doesn't mean that you can't get the services that you need to just change the quality of your life.
1: You uh, mentioned wraparound services. What are some of the things that will be provided? Is there going to be somebody like a social worker or somebody on site that is Somebody on site
0: in our command center. Somebody who can maybe help them get birth certificates or if they're uh, vets. A lot of times because uh, vets are really going through some things. They don't have the wherewithal to go to the site. And so we're bringing that site to them. Um, food stamps, maybe, medical attention, uh, maybe even employment. We just want to, uh, what do you need? And let's
1: help you get to where you need to be. So will there be requirements for people who live in Dundee Village to abide by, you know, a kind of code of conduct?
0: A code of conduct, Yeah. And, you know, what was so interesting of the Code of Conduct when I was talking to some of the ruthless people, we actually got some input from them. And I think the the best way for people to live in any um, surroundings is that they make their own rules. They're more often to follow their own rules than to be subjected by somebody else, you know, who's going to enforce these things. They wanted to work. I mean, a lot of them were kind of apprehensive about picking up all of this stuff and moving. And so the moving parts were, you know, we had real conversations. You know, you know, you don't want to move. This has been your home for a while, but we've got to get you from underneath these bridges. You know, and so that was the gist of this, just, just changing the quality of life and, you know, doing all that we can under the circumstances to let people know that we cared and that they were a part of our community that we desired to sustain.
1: To get a sense of the need for this project, Savannah City Planner Pat Monahan quoted in Savannah Now said there are about 3,000 circumstantial homeless people living in Savannah and 1,000 chronic homeless. We know, Linda, that many municipalities are against setting up temporary settlements for homeless or displaced persons, fearing that they will become permanent. What is the plan for Dundee Village? Is it going to be a permanent settlement?
0: No, it's a temporary band-aid to give people the desire to build some trust. You know, a lot of them are not trusting. And so the idea is once we build trust, we get them on a path or maybe some employment that they would not want to stay there. We we have to prepare them. This is not the end all, but it is a first step in um, acknowledging that there is a need and that we know it and they know it and we just got to do better. And I'm just so proud of our city manager who understood the plight. And so when no one else wanted it in their district, I was like, oh, wow. You know, if you can find a site for us, I'd love to put these new tents in an area that would be not so much as an eyesore. Because people say that they want to help. And then when it comes into your neighborhood, they have these uh, thoughts that I'll help. But just not around the corner for me. And so it's not a permanent solution because the next thing is to duplicate the tiny houses by way of containments. And so Patrick Shea, who is a local um, architect here, him and his people are designing, and they, um, I'm told, are really excited about the possibilities they get to do something that's going to put their um, trade and experience to a much needed cause.
1: I think Patrick Shea's firm is working for free, if I understand that, too.
0: And that's the opposite word, free. <laughs> I love free.
1: So the term that you use is roofless. I'm just curious why you use that term in particular. Well, that
0: term, I've been using that for the last eight or nine years because uh, when you go into the communities, uh, the homeless, the first thing they just say that, you know, they're not really homeless They just don't have a roof because they've built an environment that they call home. And so I just started calling it roofless people because that's what they were more comfortable with. You know, I always try to meet people where they are. And so if a a term is going to be more agreeable to them, then they're roofless people. And that's how that came about.
1: I'm wondering for you, Alderman Wilder-Brian, Wilder why did you become involved in this? You said you've been working on this eight or nine years. What was the pull well, for you?
0: I've actually been doing this for about 40 years. I started out when I moved back to um, Savannah. And don't you try to add up the age. <laughs> 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 so so I worked at the um, Economic Opportunity Authority. Mr. Finney, when I moved back to Savannah from Atlanta, it gave me an opportunity to just do some amazing things. Um, John Finney, who's just a great mentor, always told us that if you can't find the money, find some people who don't mind getting their hands dirty and that they're not numb. And so we found some people that didn't mind getting their hands dirty and their heart was in it. And so you have to be innovative. Again, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just get more people and it doesn't have to be the same people all the time. And so we just, we're going to have to be able to walk out talk. And we do this by, by being as transparent and open and thankful that people really are involved in, and this means a lot to them too.
1: Linda Wilder, Brian, thank you so much for your time and your efforts. Really appreciate yeah. it.
0: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Linda wilder Bryan. She's alderman for Savannah's 3rd District and one of the leaders behind the Dundee Village, a sanitary and secure homeless site to help residents stay safe and healthy through the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully beyond. Protests against police brutality and structural racism across the country have given rise to policy proposals in Congress and moves for reform in states and municipalities. As we close our show focusing on Savannah today, GPB's Emily Jones brings us this look at historic protests from Georgia's coastal region.
7: Diane Allman is standing on the Tybee Island beach watching her young kids play in the surf. Just this week, I've come to the beach three times and I live... um, it's, it's a good 45-minute drive for me, but they love the beach. They love the water here. Only a few decades ago, Allman would have had to drive all the way to the designated black beaches on Hilton Head. Tybee was whites only until 1964. Edna Jackson was the first black woman elected mayor of Savannah in 2011.
8: Wait in
7: Tybee, wait and Tybee children, wait in Tybee, brown skins wait in Tybee. As a teenager in the 1960s, she helped desegregate the Tybee beaches.
8: My grandmama thought I was going to, over to Hilton Head to the beach because she knew I was going to the beach. But she didn't know I was going to Tybee. And the thing was, you would go out in your cars with your swimsuits on with something on top. You know, you would just jump out and go to the water. Some didn't get to the beach. And we were arrested. Now, I was arrested for disrobing in public. And I was one of the ones that had to stay overnight. Wade and Tyby, wait and Tybee children. But they they desegregated.
7: That's going the trouble the water. Every year, Dice folks on Tybee the the remember the weighed-in protests and celebrate Juneteenth with a weighed-in of their own in a big group with public officials participating, and no police. Diane Allman brought her kids this year. It just felt like this was the year to speak up, and this was the year to celebrate. I guess, in a way, it's 2020, and it's a year of looking back and saying... Um, is it worth it? Can I see, you know, do I see the, the efforts and the fruits of my ancestors' um, sacrifices for me? And yeah, I do, yeah. And Almond's kids have joined the current protests in an online demonstration by and for kids. Edna Jackson says today's protests are part of the ongoing movement.
8: They remind me so much when I was their age, and how we wanted to affect change in this community. I call it a journey because it never ends. No matter how much you do and how much you have accomplished, I can walk out there in the street right now, and someone may call me the N-word. The difference now than, than in the 60s is that It is not led by just African Americans. If you look, take pictures of all of the protests that are happening all over this world, It is a people's protest, and that's what makes it so good, because people can see the injustices that have taken place here. But when I see it in my young people, in the young people here in this city, this city is about to change and change and change.
1: That is former Savannah Mayor Edna Jackson. And our thanks to GPB's Emily Jones for this audio postcard. On Second Thought is stepping aside for a holiday special next week. GPB will air an Independence Day edition of With Good Reason from the talented folks at PRX. You'll hear about the tradition of African-American performers and about famous and less well-known American poets. We hope you'll enjoy it, and we will be back with On Second Thought on July 10th. Until then, have a safe and happy July 4th weekend celebrating the great American experiment. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. And I'm Virginia Prescott. Thank you for spending some time with On Second Thought.